your Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalms 32. The book of Psalms, chapter 32. You know, as I looked at this message, as I prepared it, there was something very fascinating that I noticed in the construction of, well, the way David writes this, and we, we know it's a psalm of David. It tells us that right there in the, the superscript. It says, of David, a masquil. What David did was very, very ahead of his time. Because if you look at the, the psalm itself, if you study it, if you, if you get a minute to just really dig into it, maybe you want to do this later in your, in your private study, this psalm is a lot like a cassette tape. You remember those? Cassette tapes, right? Yeah, everybody here is old enough to, well, you know, some of our kids may not. But before CDs, before Spotify, and after those vinyl records that some of the hipsters like to collect and eight tracks, we had these little things called cassette tapes. And they were awful technology. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. You know, the pencil was more for than just writing when you had a cassette player. You'd put that thing on there and just twirl it and wind and rewind. And, and you know how on CDs, kids, how you can listen to the same song over and over again? We didn't have that feature. You hit rewind, you counted to 12, you hit play and hope you got it right. That was a cassette tape. And this psalm is very much like a cassette tape. It has a side A and it has a side B. But even deeper, in, further inside, the more you study it, each it's actually split up into three sections. And each section has a side A and side B. Cassette tapes didn't come out until like the late 70s, early 80s. David was around much longer before that. So that tells us how far ahead of his time David really was. If, in fact, like I said, if you look just at the psalm on the surface level, it plays like a mirror image of itself. You see the results of a confessed life, a life that confesses its sin. You see the results, and then you see the resistance to wanting to confess sin, and then you see the psalmist's response to having confessed his sin. But then, Right as, right, as, right as it continues, it, it mirrors itself. You can literally fold the psalm in half at one point and see, again, the response, the resistance, and the results one more time. It's kind of clever, really. It's almost as if there was a very intelligent mind behind writing this. And I'm not referring to David. I'm referring to God himself. But more than just those, those one-hit wonder bands whose cassettes cl now collect dust in an attic or basement, I want to show you the beauty of this psalm this morning. And the song it sings to us is the power of confessing our sin. So if you will, read with me, beginning in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let every holy one pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. 
You guard me from trouble. You surround me with the songs of deliverance. I will give you insight and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose harness are bit and bridle to control them. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh's loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Church, the overall message of this psalm, when you read it, when you study it, is very simple, and it is simply this. Confession will ruin your sin. If you're taking notes, write that down, or if you're, if you're following along in the adult notes with us, circle that. Confession will ruin your sin. You know, truth will rob sin of its shame. Honesty will rob it of its shame, but confession itself will ruin your sin. It takes away its power. We see right out of the gate, and we we see right under the chapter number in your Bible, if you look, it should say something like this, of David, a maskeel. Some people pronounce that maskeel. It's maskeel. And immediately we know who the author is. We know who is telling us this, who's singing this song. But we should take a second look at that other word, maskeel. What is that? Well, the word itself comes from a Hebrew word meaning insight. What's that mean for us? How do we understand that? Insight. Really what it's doing is it's giving us insight into something and giving instruction in how to deal with that. We actually see this word used later in Psalm 47 verse 7. It says, For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a skillful psalm. And the Hebrew word used there is maskeel. That skillful psalm indicates it's a psalm of direction. It's a hymn of wisdom. In other words, when there is something going on, this is the type of psalm we turn to to see God's direction and how to live and how to act and and direction for our life. So we have to ask, when we see this, this psalm is meant to instruct us, it's meant to direct us, well, what exactly is he telling us? What exactly does does God want us to do here? Well, we're going to unpack that this morning. And as we do, we're going to see insight into the wisdom of God. We're going to see the cause and the effect within the psalm. We're going to see the problem. We're going to see the solution. We're going to see this psalm, side A and side B. Ultimately, it's, it's like a small collection of cassette tapes, a trilogy that, that carries this theme of confession because confession will ruin your sin. The first thing we see, if there was a first cassette tape in the trilogy, if there was a title for it, it would be this, Conviction. The first cassette we would see is titled Conviction. You know, in the 70s and 80s, there would be some bands and they would have a flowing theme through their music, almost like an opera taking place over several albums. Maybe a running joke or or some subject they'd refer back to. Those, Those hair bands, you guys remember those? They were famous for this. They were notorious for doing this. There were bands like The Who, Stevie Wonder, Queen did this, Pink Floyd. Well, David did it first. And this 
is his first album, Conviction. Conviction, we often think of that. We think of a court. We think of somebody who's found guilty, convicted of a crime. But the Holy Spirit, for the Christian, conviction means something different because the Holy Spirit, while he is our comforter, he is also our convictor. Jesus said when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness in judgment in John 16, 8. So David begins to paint a picture for us. And he begins by laying out here, side A, how, how good it is when we are not under that conviction because we've been set free. He says, verses 1 and 2, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you see that in your Bible, maybe you want to underline, how blessed, how blessed. That could be the the first title of the song on side A, how blessed. The Hebrew word there means happy. But what it really means when we we dig a little deeper is it's a person who is favored by divine grace. How blessed is the person whose transgression is. That's an offense. That's a crime. And when you really dig a little deeper, it means a misdemeanor. What's a misdemeanor? It's a small crime, right? Jaywalking is a misdemeanor. It's not even a felony. It's not something huge. It's the smallest of sin. But once they are forgiven, once our sins are covered, once our sins are cleansed, how blessed we really are. In fact, sin, transgression, iniquity, we're going to see these words throughout this psalm, and all three are key Old Testament words for sin. Sin, or kata, usually means to miss the mark, but truly it's something forbidden. It's ignoring the the requirement of God, whether it's in thought, in feeling, in speech, in action. Transgression, we just saw that's that's a crime against God, a crime against his property. It's, It's even the smallest of offenses against him. And iniquity or or misdeed, that's truly the guilt that is caused by the wrongdoing. These things often appear in the Old Testament as Israel rebels against the God they claim to love and serve. And we see it in their failure to serve him and in their perversion of how they worship him. Through their idolatry as they pursue other gods. Through their adding idols to the temple. Through their failure to heed the words of the law. You name it. Israel tried it. But David says, those whose transgression is forgiven, those are the people who are truly blessed. Their sin, when it's covered, they're blessed. But here, right at the outset, I want to clarify something for us. I I kind of touched on this last week, and I pushed through it a little quickly. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices of the temple were, were to cover the sin of the people. When thanksgiving was given, it was accompanied by a sacrifice. We do not have sacrifices like that because Christ is the final sacrifice. And through him, church, hear me on this, please. Through him, our sins are not covered. David said, how blessed is he whose sin is covered, but our sin is not covered. Please understand me this morning. Our sin through Christ is cleansed. 
First John 1 John 1.7 tells us, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, Israel's sin would be covered and they'd return to their sin eventually. But when we are cleansed of our sin, it's removed completely, never to be returned to. A little further down the page in 1 John 1, it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we do what? If we confess, he's faithful to forgive and cleanse. David understood this. That's why he says, how blessed is the man. How blessed is he. But here's where it gets us, church. This is where it gets hard. That last song of side A. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh-oh. What's that mean? It means there's no treachery within the person. There's no negligence. The Hebrew word, chremeyah, David is specifically telling us that we must have no deceit in regard to the presence of our sin. In other words, the person who hides their sin, they don't get to enjoy the blessing of God. David knows it because he's tried it himself. We go to verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. He says, Selah, because we're supposed to stop and think about it. But David begins, he says, when I kept silent about my sin. David kept silent about his sin. This is a man after God's own heart. When could he possibly try to keep silent about his sin? Well, David is pulling back something for us here in this psalm that we get nowhere else in Scripture. You see, what we are getting a glimpse of here is the internal struggle of David throughout his most famous sin. When he had his transgression with the wife of Uriah. It's funny, the story begins, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says, Now it happened. Usually when scripture starts like that, something big's going to follow, right? Now it happened at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. And so he goes up on the roof of his house in the cool of the day when the sun's about to go down and he's walking along and he, he looks out over the city, maybe a house across the street, across the alley, maybe two or three houses, but he's able to see, he gets a glimpse of this beautiful woman taking a bath. Fitting her name as Bathsheba, right? He sees her. He doesn't look away. He doesn't go back downstairs. Instead, he, he looks at her and he wants her. So he sends his men, they take her. They take her to the king's chamber and, and he tries to hide his sin. He will send her husband to the front lines of the battle where it's the fiercest and have him killed. Make it look like he died a hero, that Uriah. What a mighty man. 
that Uriah, and he was. He was a mighty man of David. And then he takes Uriah's wife for himself. You see, David tries to sweep it all under the rug. He tries to hide it. And the worst thing of all is he presumes God doesn't seem to care about it. Or that God may not, this is even worse, that God may not even know about it. But he felt convicted. He tried to hide it. He tried to use his sin as a way to look righteous. But inside David's a mess. He says, I kept silent about my sin. My bones wasted away. In other words, he's, he's rotting from the inside. He's groaning in physical and emotional pain day and night. Oh, God does know. And he's weighing heavy upon David in this moment. To the point he says, his vitality, that's his physical and his mental strength begin to ebb away, begin to melt. Something funny about that word, vitality. In Hebrew, it's the word lashad. And you know, Hebrew is a very interesting language because words can completely change based on their context. One word can mean one thing one second and something totally different. Vitality. You want to know what it, the other word it can mean in English? Cake. You laugh. But think about this for just a second. Maybe God in his sovereignty chose the perfect word to explain to us, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. It's as if God is telling us, you cannot have your sin and expect to have favor with the God of the universe. You must confess your sin or the conviction will eat you alive. You will not eat your cake, it will eat you. If you are in sin, unconfessed sin, you don't have to come and tell your pastor, you don't have to tell your friends, you don't even have to tell your family, but if you are not confessing your sin, even to God, but you try to hide it, you try to pretend you're the hero, you want everyone to think you're the good guy, you won't even admit it to God himself, your sin is eating you alive, and you don't even know it. There are many who call themselves Christian, who wear the title of pastor. And they experience this very thing. They have what Paul referred to as a seared conscience. He told Timothy, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars who have been seared in their own conscience. Oh, but pastor, it's just, a, it's just a little sin that I struggle with. Just a little thing. I think the word you're looking for is excusable, and it's not. I have them. I wrestle with them. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it holy. And church, for the record, the day your pastor, whether it's me or someone far down the road, stands up here and tells you, I'm perfect. I have no sin. For the love of all that is pure and holy, for the love of your pastor, beat that man, drag him outside the building, and leave him there. He's a liar. 
Paul talks about this very thing. A very prime example of this happens in the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 5. A young man is in a very immoral relationship. And Paul says to them, you've become puffed up, have not mourned. Instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. They were celebrating God's grace. They were celebrating it so much, they forgot to mourn the sin. They were celebrating a gross relationship rather than confessing their lawlessness. So Paul tells him, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church, one of the greatest tragedies of the American church today is that we no longer are brave enough, bold enough, strong enough to practice church discipline for the sake of the believer. Instead, we'd rather wink and nod and tolerate sin within the body. Church, no. We are not to do that. With conviction must come confession. And that takes us to the next cassette, the next record, the next whatever. Because confession is what will ruin your sin. And that's the, that's the next point, confession itself. You know, every great artistic trilogy, whether it's an album, whether it's movies, the sequel, the second one always seems to be the best, Right? And that's, that's what happens here. This would be titled Confession. Conviction must lead to our confession. Notice what David says next in verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That word acknowledge is the same Hebrew word that also gets translated confess. It's the same word. It's the word yoda. Speaking of sequels and trilogies, that should not be confused with the little green alien from Empire Strikes Back, Yoda. Okay, yoda. It means to admit to a punishable deed, to notice, to realize, simply to know. When we become so calloused to conviction that we no longer know our own sin, no matter how great, no matter how small they are, church, it's too late. Notice how David says this. He says he acknowledges his sin to his priest, right? No. He goes to a Levite. And he says, hey, I acknowledge my sin to you, Levite. Pastor, I acknowledge my sin to you. Does he do that? Nope. Does he go to his brother? Does he go to his brother in Christ and say, hey, I need to tell you my, all my sin? No. Does he go to his wife? No. And he certainly doesn't post it all over social media, right? David knows that ultimately we must confess our sins to God. Now, it does help to have accountability with a Christian brother. It does help to be open with those close to us about our struggles. I'm not condemning that by any stretch. But ultimately, we must confess our sin to the Lord. He says in another psalm he wrote, Psalm 51, which is the whole theme is repentance and turning from our sin. And he says, I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me against you. And he's talking to the Lord. He says, against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And somewhere Uriah's ghost is sitting there going, really? 
David says, no, I sinned against Yahweh. So that when God judges, he says, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. David knows his sin. David knew it the moment Nathan the prophet walked in his room in 2 Samuel. And he exposes his affair. He exposes the murder of Uriah. How much that had been eating David up inside, we may never know. But look at his initial reaction. Look at what takes place. Look at the response. Nathan tells him he's been blessed by God. He's been given so much. Then why do you despise the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before Israel, before the sun. Oh, that ought to haunt us. The sin we try to cover up privately, God may one day expose. That's, that keeps you up at night. But pay attention to this. This is David's response in the moment. Verse 13 of chapter 12, 2 Samuel. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. That's it. No sackcloth, no ashes, no loud cry, no shout, no having a fit at the altar in the temple. He merely admits, acknowledges, and confesses his sin. Nathan says they were against Uriah. They were against Uriah's wife. But who does David say he sinned against? The Lord. The greater offense was against God himself. So Nathan says to David, Yahweh has taken away your sin. You shall not die And David says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We need only to confess it, to repent of it, admit our guilt, and God in his great loving kindness is faithful to forgive. We see it in the Old Testament in Proverbs, Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will receive compassion. We see it in the New Testament in the book of James. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you may be healed. That word healed in the Greek can also mean cured. Cured of what? The sin that is rotting your bones, causing you to waste away and groan all day long, to feel the weight of conviction of the Holy Spirit. The cure is to be free, not just free from the conviction, but free from the sin that has hindered your salvation and hindered your walk with Christ. Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. You see, the more we hide our sin The more we try to control our sin, the opposite happens. The more our sin will control us. It is not something we can defeat on our own. If there would be a way to do that, if it was possible to to overcome our sins on our own, there would be no need for the cross. This is why David continues. He says in verses 6 and 7, Therefore, let every holy one pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You guard me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. You notice how David begins that. He says, therefore, David's concluding something. He says, let every holy one pray to you at a time when you may be found. What he's emphasizing here is that, that a 
person who knows the goodness, the sweetness of God's grace should not just presume, well, God's got that covered. We should still confess our sin. He says, at a time you might be found, that does not mean that God cannot be found or that he wanders off at times. We know that's not true. God doesn't even sleep. He certainly doesn't run away from us or wander away like a dementia patient. He's very close to us. In fact, in Acts 17, Paul, I think it's Paul speaking, he says he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their, inhab- of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God isn't far away. God's not the one who's moved. It isn't that God is distant. It's that the people should not put off seeking him. If you feel distant from God, I assure you it is not God who has moved. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 4.29, But from there you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find him. You will find him, he promises. For you will search him with all your heart and with all your soul. Isaiah tells us the same thing David writes here in this psalm. He says, seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. But the very next line says this. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to Yahweh, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Surely in his goodness and his compassion, like Noah in the flood, we see this in our text, we are not touched by the waters of judgment. He protects us. David says, you're my hiding place. You guard me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. He's actually using flood language here. This is a callback to the story of Noah and the ark. David knew that very well. He'd read it many times. He'd know, as we know, of the fountains, plural, of the great deep and the flood gates of the sky being open in Genesis 7:11 and in verse 12 then the rain came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and yet Noah knew God as his hiding place he tucked him away in a big boat if you recall and like the psalmist in Psalm 91 in our confession of sin comes the forgiveness of sin and the being made safe from the judgment of God on our sin now we see this, we might say, or we might understand why we must confess our sin because we feel convicted, because we know our sin and how it separates us. We know we're sinful people, we're, we're tainted with sin because of the fall of Adam, and yet we might ask, well, what does confession, how does it truly ruin our sin? Because sin, when we confess it, confession takes away sin's power over us. This is God's way of exposing what we would rather keep hidden. Sin is a trap. It's a snare for our soul. And the more we keep it in darkness, the more it keeps us in bondage. I think this is one reason when John the Apostle writes in his gospel and in his epistles, when he refers to Christ, he uses words like the word. And he uses words like light. Because words break silence. And many people suffer from sin silently. They don't want to talk about it. But it's the word that breaks the silent sin. Light comes in the darkness. John 1.5 says, A light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not overtake it. 
Sin that can say that, that tries to stay silent cannot shout over the word, and the sin that remains hidden in darkness is exposed in the light. My old pastor Roger Willis in, in Illinois, he used to say this all the time. He'd say, Your sin is like a cockroach. You turn the light on and it will scatter and it has no place to hide. The importance of confession cannot be overstated here. But when we're convicted, if we confess, our, it's our confession that ruins the power of sin, but it takes us into a time of conversion. And that's the final point this morning. Confession must lead to conversion. You might say, well, I already converted. I became a Christian. Yes, you were justified. You were sanctified. But sanctification is a process that's going to take the time of your earthly life to complete. And even then, it'll only happen in the resurrection. We're truly completely sanctified. Same is true with conversion. We're constantly going to revert back to sin. Maybe not the same sins we wrestled with before. I pray that's not the case. But we will all struggle with this battle. John tells us if we say that we have no sin or that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Notice John uses the words we and us. Because he's including himself in that phrase. All believers. And John says, I'm one of them. Who, John, by the way, who walked with Jesus, reclined with him at the table, who stood at the foot of the cross, who was charged with the care of Jesus' mother. And even he says, if I say I don't have any sin, I make God out to be a liar. So the conversion process is continual. As we're convicted, as we confess, we must be converted. David goes on. He shows us what this looks like with the side A of this final point. And it's God speaking. He says, I will give you insight and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose harness are bit and bridle to control them. Otherwise, they will not come near you. David is writing it, but it's as though God himself is speaking to the reader. He says, I will give you insight. I will teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. How does God give us insight? Well, through the Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. Paul makes this clear when he writes to Timothy. He says, understand what I say, for the Lord will give you insight in everything. And what Paul was saying, he was writing as he was writing Scripture. Proverbs 2.6, For Yahweh gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and discernment, and from his mouth comes his word. And so Paul concludes again in 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good Work. What better insight could we hope to receive? Well, that's fine, Pastor, but uh, you hold the Bible a little too high sometimes. I've heard that recently, and I had to laugh because, honestly, I don't think I hold it high enough. Psalm 56, 4 says, In God, whose word I praise, what do you say there? Whose word I praise? In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Later in Psalm 138, verse 2 says, I will worship toward your holy temple, give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. His word and his name. I'm by no means suggesting we should worship a book 
okay? Don't go home and build a little altar to your Bible and drop pins and things like that. Don't do that. You'd be missing the point. But when you read your Bible, it is God speaking to your heart, speaking to your mind. If you don't get that when you read your Bible, you are reading it wrong. No, I don't think I hold it high enough. If I did, I'd be reading it all the time because God is speaking to us through it all the time. We have to ask, well, then how does he teach us? Well, of course, he also uses his word for that, but he also teaches us through trials, through testing, through tribulation, through discipline. The writer of Hebrews said, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He's quoting Proverbs 3.12. How does he counsel us with his eye upon us? Well, Jesus tells us the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you Bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That word advocate in the Greek, it's parakletos, can be translated counselor, comforter, helper, helper, and teacher. When we give our lives to Christ, his Holy Spirit dwells within us and it guides us, but his Spirit will never lead you to do something that contradicts the Scripture the Holy Spirit inspired. God gives us instruction. He gives us his word. And many times we feel conviction and what do we do? The first thing we do when we feel convicted or, or maybe the, the sermon hits us a little, mm, I, don't, I don't know if I like him getting in my business like that. Pastor's just talking right to me today, right? What do we do? We buck, we pull, we get up, we walk out. I'm gonna look for another church. Pastor's just meddling with my life, stepping on my toes. No, God tells us stop acting like the mule who needs a bit and a bridle to control them. Be, instead, we are to be men and women who listen to his word. Otherwise, his insight and his teaching and his counsel will not come near. In other words, they won't even be received. Church, I'm preaching to myself here this morning. Stubbornness can be a wonderful thing sometimes, but it can very quickly become a sinful thing when we are no longer teachable. Because when we are no longer teachable, we are no longer reachable. Paul says in Romans 2, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's interesting that word stubbornness that Paul uses is the same word we use to get the word sclerosis. It's an abnormal hardening of the body's tissue. As we get older, we have to pray that God keep our hearts and our heads soft because if we are too hard-hearted or too hard-headed to heed the word of God, we begin to store up wrath for ourselves. And that slides into how David finishes everything in verses 10 and 11. He says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. This is the condition of the hard-hearted, the hard-headed, that stiff-necked mule of a man who would do better to have a bit in his mouth than be allowed to go in his own way. This is the type of person, there's no end to their misery. Eventually, they just become consumed by it. God may spare them for a time, but eventually, just like Pharaoh, their hard heart keeps hardening and keeps hardening 
And finally God says, okay, have it your way. But, but, he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. And here we have the comparison within the psalm. On the one hand, you've got the bitter, grumpy, old cuss who never wants to change, never wants to grow, never wants to learn. And on the other hand, you have someone whose life is surrounded with love, compassion, joy, peace, patience, understanding, self-control, the list goes on. He says, be glad in Yahweh. And again, I asked this last week, do you enjoy your walk with Christ? Do you find joy in your worship? Do you find joy in your prayer time? Do you find joy in your Bible study? If you do, shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. That's how David ends it. When's the last time you were in prayer and worship and it was all you could do just to not sing out and, and thank God and shout for joy and worship him and praise him for who he is? Like we saw last week, make a joyful noise to the Lord or make a loud shout to Yahweh all the earth. It's really hard to do that when we harden our hearts. It's hard to do that whenever we become stiff-necked and hard-headed. When we shrug off conviction. When we fail to confess our sin. We say things like, it's not my problem, everyone else has the issue. Right? It's not me, she's the one ruining our marriage. It's not my work ethic, my boss just asks too much of me sometimes. And maybe there are some toxic relationships that need to be addressed, but if you're the common denominator in your problems in your life and you're miserable and you won't receive correction, you won't receive direction, well, it's at that point we have to really ask, Holy Spirit, how hard is my heart? Have I confessed my sin? Have we confessed the sin that's trapped us? Have we, have we shed light on it? Has the conviction not hit home or has it? Because if it has, we should naturally want to confess it to God because he's faithful to forgive us and faithful to convert us. Because our confession will ruin that sin. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back this morning. I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to ask everyone here, I'm not going to ask you to stand up, I'll just ask you to bow your head, close your eyes, nobody looking around. I don't normally do this. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. We're not going to humiliate you. Just everyone bow your head, close your eyes, and ask the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. If someone's not willing to face the hard truth of conviction over their sin, that cold, hard reality of self-denial, the hard demands of following Christ, they won't last we have to con constantly, constantly go to the well of conviction and drink deeply and confess that we do have sin within us if we're to continue in our walk with Christ. The believer who refuses to feel conviction is not a person who wants to remain a follower of Jesus Christ. The Jesus of the Gospels called out sin all the time. John said of him, John the Baptist, he said, I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Church, fire in Scripture is not a comfortable thing. It's a good thing, but it's not an easy thing. 
Because it's either the wrath of God or it is God removing the impurities as he cleanses us and makes something better. We sang about that in our worship this morning. Removing the dross and purifying us. Christ didn't come to cover that sin. He came to remove it. To cleanse us from it. So this morning, take some time where you are. If you begin to feel convicted, confess your sin. And when you're ready, join us as we sing and worship this morning.